Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Brian Walsh, CEO of Rating Software. Brian, you're very welcome to the show. Brilliant. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to have you, man. Typical fashion of the show. First couple of minutes getting to know you, and then we'll jump into the other sections of the podcast. So, where did you grow up, and what was it like growing up? Any standout memories or favorite hobbies? So, I grew up in Wexford. Um, I think I had a pretty average upbringing. Uh, I, I enjoyed maths. I was, I was really good at, at maths. Uh, enjoyed School, um, pretty pretty standard from from a childhood. Nothing nothing out of the ordinary. Um, my uh, my dad was a wildlife ranger on a wildlife reserve in Wexford, so I used to to go out to to the, the playground with him. Uh, so I spent a lot of time out in the, the wilderness in Wexford. But besides that, it's pretty pretty standard childhood. Okay, awesome, cool. Um, I I'm a, I'm a fan of Wexford myself. My girlfriend's parents have a house down there, so we go down every uh, probably once or twice a year to spend a day or two. Um. When you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you want to follow in your dad's footsteps? Did you want to become a professional sports player, musician? Definitely not a professional sports player. No, no. I think like most young people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted to um, wanted to do something challenging. I enjoyed, like I said, I, I was I was really good at maths. That, that was probably from from an educational perspective, that was my main skill. And anything to do with numbers, like physics and accounting, and anything else they taught in school to do with numbers, I was good at. And the languages, well, I, I wouldn't have been as good at those kind of things. So I, I wanted to do something involving maths. I, I enjoyed computers. I, I used to play a lot of computer games. I was a programming at the time. So um, some, something involving maths and, and something that, that was going to make a lot of money, I guess, was, was another motivator. I wanted to, wanted to go out and, and do something. I didn't want to just you know, slide through, through life. But I, I didn't have a strong. I wasn't like, I was like, oh, I want to be an actress since I was, I was four years old or anything like that. Gotcha. And making money, making a lot of money was important to you? I think it was, yeah. I think I, think I had a, a kind of a wanderlust uh, to, to just get out and see what was out there in the world. I wanted to, I, I guess I, I thought that there was more to the world than just living in Wexford forever. So, um, you know, uh, making money, I guess, was a, was a way to go and achieve that and, and see what else was out there. I think as I, as I grew up, I, I did a lot of traveling and, you know, enjoyed going to very far from places in the world. So it was just a, a means of achieving that. And I'm assuming your early interest in maths was what led you to study financial and actuarial maths at DCU because that's moving into the rating role. That's a going from studying actuarial and finance, or was it actuarial maths actuarial and finance, finance. Yeah. Um, to then becoming a CEO is a bit of a is a bit of a pivot. I'm not sure if it is. I think, um, it, it, like, I, I, there was a lot of influence uh, from, from my mum when I was a kid, and uh, she used to we used to spend a lot of time at, at kind of seven to ten years old going through the maths that I was doing in primary school, and there was a really strong foundation built there. We used to spend a good bit of time going through exactly what things meant and um, having a really strong understanding of the, how, how numbers worked. And I think that 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 kind of foundation built a lot of. Um, built 
you know, my, my understanding of continuing to understand how maths works through, throughout college. But going into college then, um, uh, the actuarial maths is uh, quite technical. I think there, there's two types of actuaries in the world. There, there's actuaries who really love technology and get into building systems. And, and a lot of actuaries do uh, uh, quite a bit of programming because they're creating models for insurance companies to model what uh, the expected debt, uh, the, the expected debt ratios are going to be and claims ratios are going to be. So they're, they're writing mathematical models to do that kind of analysis. So going into programming and, and kind of building things is, is, is not that much of a pivot. There is another type of actuary that is, is not necessarily the most technologically advanced and, and is more just purely finance focused. Uh, but I think that that's probably uh, going away more now as mm. the universities have quite a lot of focus on programming. So you, even when I did actually, you in first year in DCU, you did all of the programming modules that all of the computer science um, people would have done. So we, we did introduction to Java with 350 computer science um, students. So you, you do get straight into uh, an introduction to programming. Gotcha. Before we move on, I'd like to ask guests the question around impact and influence. What I mean by that is people can usually, if they rewind to their younger selves, they can usually point to a handful of people, close friends, acquaintances, teachers, parents, uh, other family relatives who had a impact or influence on them in their early days. So think young Brian that helped shape the person you've become today. Does anyone spring to mind for you? Parents, both both my parents probably have, uh, as I imagine everyone there, their parents shapes their lives more than anyone else. And said the, the story about my mom teaching me maths and, and the time I would have spent with my dad out in the wildlife reserve. I think there was a there was a particular teacher in secondary school as well who was a very good maths teacher. Um, who uh, you know, there's a number of people like a, there was only about fifty people in CBS in Wexford, um, uh, but a number of people went to do actually out of that particular course. So I think he's probably helped uh, push a good, good number of people towards the, the actuarial degree. Well, shout out to your teacher and both of your parents as well for the impact they've had on you. Um, I'd like to rewind the clock to the year, if I'm correct, 2007. You spent nine years at Financial Risk Solutions. Um, and in that nine-year period, I'd like to get an understanding of what skills you felt you improved from your time spent there. Perhaps one or two skills that you weren't so great at uh, but were crucial to improve as you moved into your next role, which is CEO at the moment. Yeah, so uh, Financial Risk Solutions was, was quite a small company when I joined, so it was founded by five actuaries. And after I graduated, I didn't really want to be uh, a traditional actuary. I didn't want to go and work in a life insurance company. I found that um, I, I'd done a placement in ArcLife, uh, which is an AIB's insurance company, and they had uh, quite a large amount of in-house programming that they had done to build their quotation systems, and I, I enjoyed working on that. So after uh, after working in Arc Life, I thought I wanted to go and do a lot more programming. I found out the guys in FRS were a group of actuaries who had built uh, their own enterprise software to go and solve a particularly niche problem in the insurance industry. So when I went in there, I hadn't, I, I'd, done a, I'd done a lot of hobby programming, but I hadn't really worked as an enterprise software developer going through a proper software development lifecycle testing and, and that kind of thing. And um, so that, that was probably the, the primary skill that I picked up working there was how to talk to insurance companies and banks and understand the problems, break down the problems that they had, translate uh, requirements from someone who wasn't necessarily the most technological into a, a technology solution. And as well, I'd say the other the other skill that I picked up in FRS was 
um, as it was a small company, you get a lot of exposure to really wide range of tasks. So as well as doing the design and architecture and testing of the software package, um, I would have been involved in some of the technical sales as well. So I would have been in the room trying to convince major stakeholders in large insurance organizations that you know the software that we had built was going to satisfy their needs. So that that was um, that was a good skill to build for for kind of pivoting into into rating because while um, you know one of the major parts of, of going through B two B selling, especially selling to really large financial uh, institutions like like we do, is trust. It's it's a real relationship based game. You have to be able to get into the room and, and talk to people at at a level that they can really understand and, and make them feel very safe that you are going to solve the, the problem for them. Mm, absolutely. And now you just mentioned at the end there, rating CEO of it at the moment. So rather than me give the kind of 30, 60 second overview, you'll do a much better job as you're the CEO. So the mic is yours, Brian. So it's actually the USP of rating is we're a group of actuaries that have built a really large data management solution. So we'll go into banks and insurance companies and we will find regulatory problems that they have to solve, typically new regulatory problems that they, that they have to meet in the future. And the regulatory problem will require them to bring together data <clears throat> from a large number of internal systems. And some of these systems are very old, COBOL-based uh, systems, and some of them might be very new systems. So what our, uh, what our solution does is it is able to reach out to all of those uh, systems inside the bank and insurance company, bring the data together. And we have a large number of actuaries that work for us then that will understand the regulatory requirement and will understand the calculations required and how, how to bring that data together and to produce whether it's a disclosure to a customer or a policyholder or whether it's a disclosure to a regulator. So that, that's really the USP that we come in and, and we'll say, well, we have actuaries who understand both the technical understanding of how to bring all of these disparate systems together, but they also have a, an understanding of the financial services domain and are able to talk to the, the business people about the regulation requirement. Mm. And for anyone listening or watching this, if they're interested in learning more, there and I'll mention this a couple more times before we finish recording, there is a link in the comments field below to visit both Brian's LinkedIn page, but also the company page as well. Um, and any other links post this, Brian, that you'd like me to share, just let me know and I'll pop them in as well. Um, Brian, when you think of business owners who have a, let's say, medium-term plan to eventually exit their business by through you know, selling it on. So like five to 10 year plan to exit their business, but they know that they need to get some things tightened in order to improve. I believe it's called a price to earnings ratio. Um, when you look at businesses uh, that have that objective in mind and they realize, you know, I want to position this so I can sell it in five to 10 years time. What are some of the blind spots that you might see in uh, that could be the downfall of, not achieving the full value a company should achieve blind spots when i reference blind spots things that they should tighten such as like you know their hiring process um their onboarding process their um internal communication their uh not tying corporate goals to personal goals not focusing on lead generation but just a couple different things that they really got to focus on is there a common thing that you see in businesses that they really ought to kind of got to get their shit together on that one specific thing if they want to eventually be able to get the maximum value they can from their company. Um, like if I'm, I'm to rephrase sure it, is there that. like a common area where you think 
companies fall down on when it comes to selling their business that if they just paid a bit more attention to X, that they could have increased the value of their company. For example, one common thing is too much uh, reliance on the CEO or the owner themselves, that if they step out and they're not in the business, the business almost falls apart. So you yeah. can't have the business fully reliant on the CEO and founder. Yeah, I, I think that um, B2B selling is so relationship-based that um, it, is, it is hard to extract yourself from the, not just the operational aspects, but from the, the relationships that you build up as, as part of being the owner and interacting with the kind of C-suite in the client, whether they're current clients or whether they're potential clients. Um, I, I think uh, definitely when you start in or when, when you start a company like ours, so we we bootstrapped from the start. So, and um, there was three of us who founded the company, and we um, basically the, the the two guys were qualified actuaries, and they went out and did actuarial consulting, and, and I, um, I I built the code uh, at home, and we just split two salaries three ways, and and that took uh, that took quite a long time for us to sell our first software license. So I think we started the company in the start of 2016. We signed our first software license in uh, around July 2017. So there was a good 18 months with uh, with no contract. And then it's not like you sign the contract and you get paid on day one. So, you know, we probably didn't make any software revenue until 2018 uh, after the project had been finished and everything. And even then, we, we did continue to do consulting uh, to, to finance the operations of the company. And I think so that, that was two years of... Um, that was two years of, of us you know building the software product entirely doing absolutely everything ourselves it is it is difficult to then extract yourself from that and i think you have to hire good people and build trust in the in the staff that you hire that you uh, you know releasing the reins is not necessarily something that you might want to do after you've done it and you might enjoy it you know it, it's it's fun to build um, I, I think you know it depends it depends on the skills that you come into the company with definitely for the skills that we started the skills that we had were we had spent 10 years building enterprise software and, and implementing and selling it. and that was what we were really good at and that's what we really enjoyed whereas the the sales side of it and uh, the actual lead generation and getting into the room with people was something that we needed to learn and something we were probably less comfortable with so you know there I think as you go through different stages of the company there are different challenges that you face you know the first challenge that we would have faced was how do we get into the room with people and and that was us doing all of, all of that learning kind of trying things mm. trying to trying to get people to meet us then as you get into more rooms and you talk to more people and you make more sales it's then how do i start to operationalize more of this bring more people in start to not do all of the the operations ourselves and and uh, and that really is around trust and about bringing in good people good hiring practices um and, and empowering those people to make decisions themselves. And I think, you know, that's, I, I think that's something that we did quite well. It was, you know, we hired good people and saw that if we wanted to grow the company, we were, you know, we couldn't do everything ourselves. And but yeah, I can imagine that that's not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Focusing on that, on that hiring part for a second, because that was one of my, one of my later questions is there's a, common study and regulations will be sick of what I'm about to say or probably predict what I'm about to say a reference a lot is the Harvard Business Review study um, where it says that you know the cost of a bad hire is five times the annual salary um, so if you hire someone for you know 100,000 and, and, and they turn out to be bad and not good for the company and, they, and you fire them or they leave in a year that company that person has actually cost you 
total of about half a million instead of a hundred thousand. And that's through missed opportunity and, and a variety of other things. So hiring is incredibly important to get right, but also difficult to get right. Um, and I know that you're hiring for, I believe it's five new roles or you were, there was a post put up on your LinkedIn company page within the last month of hiring for five new roles. So that's awesome to see. But the question here is, do you have a process? Um, and if so, can you kind of give me a brief run through what that is or is it purely based off like good feel? Uh, no, it's definitely not based off good feel. It depends on the seniority of the hire. So if we're hiring a senior uh, technical resource, there are practical exams that we would give people to do. So um, essentially we would um, walk them through a very nondescript problem uh, that, that we, uh, I, I guess what we're trying to see is we're looking for certain skills in senior people that we're hiring. And, and one of them is, can you take a problem that I explained to you in English and relay back uh, a high level design in how the, the technology would work? Uh, so we have uh, we have some sample problems that we go through with people that are abstracted away from anything to do with finance, anything to do with, with anything. It is a, a real world problem, but it allows us to, uh, in a very controlled environment, um, see how someone is able to take a conversation like we're having now and then switch that into a technical conversation about how they would configure a system to do that. And that lets us it's quite interesting in that you get to judge people's technical abilities, but you also just get to see, um, you know, you can see how flustered people are, you can see how people react, and they're, they're, it's purposefully designed to be very easy at the start and to get very difficult at the end. Uh, and I, I think like there's very few people that have answered all of the questions that we ask. So it, it's like a, a, it lets you see how someone deals with the discomfort of, of not, not being able to answer all the questions. And are they able to engage back and forth with us? And obviously, like we understand that it is an interview and people are nervous, less nervous at the senior level, um, but, but you know, that people are not necessarily operating at 100% efficiency. But it's a similar question that we ask all of the senior people that we hire and it allows us to compare different people. And it also means that as we've done this over the years, we can see how the people have performed that we have hired uh, people that we decided to hire and now they're, they're two and three years with us and say okay well like this 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 is what we need to see because we hired these people and they've worked out really well so you know i i think you always have to err on the side of um, i might let i might let a good person go is a better thing to happen than, than to let bad people in and i think you know the people that we've hired have all worked out really well so maybe we have not hired some people that would have worked out really well but, you know, um, I think the, 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 the way that we conduct those senior hires has, has let us pick people that are going to fit in well to the skills that we're looking for them to do. You just said the people that we've hired have worked out really well. One, congrats on, on that. That's, that's awesome to hear. But the question that I have now is retention. Um, holding on to good staff once you've got them is another task. And there's a lot of big tech companies that you're competing against nowadays. And, you know, I have never been into any of the big companies, but a lot of my friends work for them. And, you know, some of the benefits for those companies are, are uh, remarkable. Um, so when it comes to competing against those big guys, it's not an uh, issue that's, uh, it, it, it is an issue that is uh, spoken about quite regularly at the moment. So how do you make sure that you retain your top talent? Yeah, so we've, um, I, I think we've had one person that left and, and they went home. 
um, you know, there, 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 there was uh, someone mm. who, who, in the pandemic, wanted to move back to their their, their home country. Uh, besides that, uh, no, no one has left us at the WFR in, in the, the six years that we've been running. I think we are we are quite a, an attractive uh, proposition to come and work for, uh, because you, it is a small company. Um, and you're dealing with the people that uh, are the main stakeholders in the company. So the fact that we're bootstrapped, we've never taken on any investment. The three of us that own the company have car launch to do whatever, whatever we want. And, and we, have, um, we, we have good relationships with all of our clients. So we're dealing with um, household names and solving uh, quite large transformation projects for uh, these large financial institutions. So you're getting to interact with very senior people inside client organizations, you're building a good network, you're solving really interesting problems, and you're working with a team of, of leaders that, that is listening to uh, the best way to solve the problem. Like our like financial services in, in is a really small industry, and it is all reputational based. All of our sales are all based on uh, introductions or good work that we've done with mm. organizations getting uh, getting known wider or people that work in those organizations going somewhere else and saying oh the problems that i see now these guys solved before let's bring them in and they'll solve the problems in here as well so quality of work is is paramount in that regard so if you want to come in and uh, and and work on interesting problems um and work on a wide array of interesting problems uh, and get to see the end-to-end -end build those from the initial conversation with the client where we start teasing out what problems the client has to all the way of designing the solution, building the solution, implementing the solution and, and putting it into production. Um, a company of our size is probably quite unique. Whereas if you go and work for a larger company, um, they'll give you free lunch. Um, but you know, you're, you're working in a, in a, in a small, you're working in a, in, you're a small cog in the machine and you don't have as much say as you would have working for us. And, you know, they're, they're, they're probably not as easy to, to move around and see different parts of the industry and see different parts of the, that individual organization and kind of say, I really like doing this. I want to do more of this, or I'd like to see what it's like working over in these different areas. To, to the right person, I can see how it can be remarkably attractive. Um, Tools. Is there a tool out there that you can't live without? And when I say tools, think uh, CRM or communication tools like Slack. Is there one of those out there that you just could not remove from your day to day? I think there's a lot of development tools. Um, I think uh, it's Microsoft. Microsoft put a lot of effort into building um, uh, building a lot of really good development tooling. Uh, probably not the, the widest answer for people that are that are listening to the podcast, but the, the Microsoft development platforms around Visual Studio and SQL. SQL Server is, is a really strong, um, really strong stu uh, tool set for building uh, enterprise applications and for managing the entire lifecycle. Outside of that, we use an array of tools. Um, I, yeah, I mean, look, we've moved from Slack to Teams. Um, you know, I think when you're in our kind of organization, you end up using every single video conferencing uh, service there is. Um, so no, I, 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 I think that there, there's lots of good tooling out there. I wouldn't focus so much on the tooling though, I think uh, from, from kind of, do you use Jira or do you use Salesforce or those kind of things? They're, they're essentially just tools. Um, and I think you, you could probably get by on Excel if you really, if you really want. So I don't think that's going to be the make or break for, for kind of organizations that, mm. that, that we are. Brian, have you got your own definition of what success means to you? Yeah, I think freedom is, is probably one of the biggest things that we looked for when we started the company. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we didn't take on any external financing. Um, I think what, what I like most about the, the, the organization that we have is, that is, is the freedom to work on different problems, to approach different things. There's, there's, 
I mean, while while a client is ultimately a form of, of boss, there is a much more of a choice in the relationship that you have with the client and, and the things that you accept and push back on and, and the kind of clients that you engage with. So I think um I think whatever you're whatever you're doing in whatever field it is, um the feeling of being free is probably the most important thing. It doesn't necessarily matter what you're doing uh, as long as you feel as though you don't necessarily have to do it, if that makes sense. Mm, absolutely. Final question for you, Brian, is around the secondary school curriculum. It's a question I like to finish up on the podcast with every guest. Um, and I'm more than happy to share the common most three answers after you give me yours is if you were the decision maker in adding a mandatory subject to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why? Um, yeah, so I I think um, I think increased computer uh, com- computer training, uh, whether whether or not you should teach every single secondary, I, I, it's always difficult because um, you think the things that you enjoy are the things that you think everyone should do. Um, I, I think uh, I, I think there's a certain way of looking at the world that comes from learning how to program, and um, there's a there's a logical way of looking at the world that certainly suits people like uh, like me that that are that are good at maths and that that like thinking logically. Um, computers is an extension of that and the ability to program is uh, a way of codifying and maybe refining your critical thinking and your systems thinking and um, so whether or not you should make everyone do it I, I, I imagine that there are people that enjoyed subjects in school that I didn't enjoy uh, you know the in- English and, and those kind of things um, that maybe might not enjoy that as much so I don't know if I'd make it mandatory um, I, I think maybe should have a bigger influence um, on that I think I think access to I certainly when I was in secondary school and um, they didn't teach all of the subjects so I remember I they, they had a chemistry teacher but uh, I, I wanted to do chemistry and they didn't uh, they didn't teach chemistry because I think I might have been the only one in the whole school who wanted to do chemistry uh, so you know maybe may, I, I don't know what the solution to that is is there a technology way that you can uh, you know you can use a Coursera type model to teach the to, to provide access to subjects that aren't necessarily provided in in all of the schools and um, certainly in you know kind of small schools in, in places like Wexford don't just don't teach all, all of the subjects. So maybe, maybe rather than making things mandatory, it's more uh, providing access to, to existing subjects that aren't taught in, the, in those schools. I feel you on that, man. I, uh, I went to secondary school up here in Meath and Rotos, but our school wasn't built for the first couple of years. So we went to school at the race course, various race course, where the Grand National held. So like our class our maths class could have been in a private box our english class could have been in a changing room p was running a lap of the race course so there wasn't as many of those um what's not the physical uh, there wasn't any, as many of those non-mandatory subjects on offer like economics wasn't a, a, on offering and there, there were as the school has grown there's been more on offer but certainly when i was there for the first five or six years there definitely wasn't as, wasn't as many on offer but the most common three that we get on this podcast and this episode's probably about episode 150 so far this year would be coding finance and business something to do in those three areas so you kind of fall within one of those areas certainly your answer does but brian it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today as mentioned before anyone interested in learning more about the company or yourself there'll be links about your linkedin profile and the company profile there's a couple of blogs and sections on your profile as well i'll link people to that um but for today thanks for being my guest and i wish you nothing but continued success no thanks for having me